Hi, I'm Dr. Robin Roth, but my friends call me the Booby Docs, my popular social media account where I talk about breast cancer and breast health in an educational and fun way. I'm a board-certified radiologist who specializes in breast imaging and image-guided procedures. I'm also a 40-something Ashkenazi Jewish woman with a strong family history of breast cancer and BRCA, so I know a thing or two about breast cancer. And this is my podcast, The Girlfriend's Guide to Breast Cancer, Breast Health, and Beyond. If you or someone you love has been affected by breast cancer, this podcast is for you. Each episode, I sit down with top breast cancer experts, thrivers, providers, and those that love them to bring you the breast information. So get ready to learn, laugh, and let's be breasties. This podcast is not intended for medical advice. Please refer to your doctor with any symptoms or concerns you may be having. Thank you and enjoy the show. Welcome back to part two of my incredible conversation with Christina Burke. If you missed the last episode, go back and listen where Christina shares the story of her own battle with breast cancer that was suddenly sidelined when her husband, Jim, a previously healthy 48-year-old renowned Philadelphia chef, was diagnosed with an aggressive form of metastatic lung cancer. Christina offers incredible insight and wisdom on how to advocate for yourself and others, what the grief process looks like and how she connects with her husband and keeps his memory alive. This is such a raw and touching conversation about losing a loved one, and I'm so incredibly grateful to Christina for sharing their beautiful story with our listeners. At that point, they scheduled him for an x-ray, and he came home about 20 minutes later, and we got the call that he had lung cancer. Oh, my God. I mean, the shock was beyond he was um, 48. Non-smoker, and they diagnosed him with lung cancer off the chest x-ray. I can't even imagine. Yes. So it was a mutative. Uh, we found out that it was a gene that mutated, like very random. Like anyone with a set of lungs could actually get this type of cancer, which is horrifying. What type of, what type of cancer was it? So he had um, something called EGFR, deletion 19. And it is when you are, you're a non-smoker and um, it's just a random gene in your body that mutates. The issue with this type of diagnosis is they don't find it until it is stage four. Wow. I don't even, I've never even heard of that type of lung cancer. So it's very odd for a man, his age is very young. And mostly it happens a lot in um, Asian cultures and a lot with women and not too much with um, men. It's happening more often now, but as even as far back as like, I mean, it was three years ago, it wasn't. And then what happened, Robin, is over the next two weeks, his diagnosis for us just kept getting worse. Um, Meaning once we were able to be seen by a practitioner, then they let us know that it was in his rib cage, his spine, and his hip, hence the hip pain. And then he did a bronchoscopy. And we also did special testing, um, which I always recommend to patients. It's not always offered depending on what hospital you are. So you must research and make sure you get this type of testing But once you get it, it helps the doctors target your therapy. And so you're able to get non-invasive therapy to help you with the outcome of your cancer. What was the test called that 
I mean, he was diagnosed with metastatic disease, which is not a great prognosis to begin with. So tell me about his course. Sure. So we took the great thing about the Tigriso, um, it's, it works, like I said, I mean, you heard the results and how he responded in his brain. Um, and that was really fantastic for us. However, the drug, um, your body will ultimately build up a resistance to this drug and then you will have regrowth. Um, and we knew that, but some things that we've experienced and read was like people having six years, people having four years. Um, unfortunately, Jim had two. Um, and it, the, the progression that it took was once the, once we started seeing signs of resistance, we had to then really go to like, okay, what's next. And honestly, what's next at stage four after targeted therapy is chemo and radiation. So he had to, um, start radiation on the base of his, well, he had radiation on his hip and then he had to start having radiation on the back of his um, skull. So they had to make him a full mask. So his radiation for the hip was relatively easy. That's what we were comparing. Um, and we joked because we met together working and we were always kind of like the healthy competition. And we would joke even in this because we had to keep things light that our treatment, like, oh, my my treatment, my radiation is harder than yours, but oh, you're cute. And it was ridiculous, but it was like the thing that we had to keep it light, you know? Totally. Um, I would go to every single appointment with him. I never missed one. I think I did miss one and his mother went, but then toward the end, his brother would come with me or something. So again, for more support. Um, radiation to his hip, radiation to his brain, and then he needed chemo because at that point we weren't really seeing a ton of results and things were progressing quite quickly. Um, and yeah, it, it just, then it progressed. And by the time, so this was August of 2020 that he was diagnosed and he passed on August 8th of 2022. Wow. I, I can't even imagine what you've been going through. Um, what was it like? I mean, for your family losing Jim? Yeah. I mean, he, it, it's still, I think initially, I mean, it's, it's, again, it's very complicated, right? It's an onion. So I was in such a specific role as his caretaker because Robin to back up, I was doing so much of his caretaking at home. We would really only go to the hospital when he needed chemo or radiation. I was giving him five different syringes and medications a day on my own into his arm. I was cleaning his port. I was doing his IV bags. Um, I was also, it took me about 45 minutes to an hour once a week just to do his medication reconciliation in the beginning of the week to be organized. You were a full home caretaker. Yeah. And I'm organizing his appointments. I'm raising two children. Um, trying not to forget about when my appointments are. Um, and I, I think I was running on adrenaline because I did manage to do it all. And I don't ever brag about myself ever, but I did an exceptional job taking care of my husband. And I think the only reason I can say that now is because last week I had a very emotional, pardon me, <clears throat> conversation with my son. 
And I was very upset. And um, I don't hide that from the kids because we all have to learn to be here for one each other in our grief. And he told me, Mom, I need you to know that whenever you took care of daddy or you walked in a room or you were out and then came home or you started taking care of him compared to a nurse, his presence changed. His personality shifted. He said, I think dad never felt safer than when you were next to him. That's the most beautiful thing. And I don't think caretakers get a lot of credit because it's, I never slept. You know, you're listening to his breathing. You're, he didn't want the details, but in order for me to properly get the treatment, not to say that his care team didn't, they were amazing, but you have to do deep dives. You know, I took hours reading his scans. I found things that they didn't tell me about. I said, why didn't you tell me? I've just found the scan on his adrenal gland. And they were like, what are you, a radiologist? Like, how did you do that? And I said, because I'm crazy. Like, you got to read the report. You got to read the reports. Um, and I think it helped me cope because I was in control of a situation I couldn't control. He was so lucky to have you. And it's so beautiful that your son picked up on that, like how, you know, and that's the most meaningful thing he probably could have said and probably right when you needed to hear it. Right. Absolutely. And I also just became not just Jim's advocate at the time. I really feel like I became a cancer patient advocate um, and that could be very small, just meaning like when you see people in the hallways, how you treat them, all the techs, all the doctors. I mean, everyone's just doing such tremendous job coping and trying to get through really difficult diagnosis. I think you just have to be the person that is not woe is me and woe is everyone. And we have to lift all each other up. How are we going to do that? And my way was to start a fundraiser in my husband's honor, in his name, but none of the money came to our family. I raised it for private research, for clinicians to do private research projects to enable the next steps for what happens after Tocriso, which is his lung cancer medication. What happens when a person builds a resistance up to that? What do we do next? And those next steps are, I mean, honestly, it's all funded. You know, it has to be funded it, and it's 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 really hard to get them funded when there's so much out there, but um, you have to be a champion for that. And I don't think I ever, I never did fundraising on that scale before. I didn't, the thing is what I didn't do, what a lot of women do all the time is, I don't know about this. I'm not good enough. I'm a um, imposter, right? I didn't even go there. And I usually do that with a lot of things. I just said, I'm going to do this. That was the difference. Like having the confidence to just do it versus thinking about it. And I just used all my connections and my husband's connections in Philadelphia, where we're located, and then in our hospitality industry. And I did connect with some state, other states, not five other states outside of Pennsylvania. And in two months, I raised um, over $100,000 in two months that went. And we wound up getting the two private um, because I wound up finishing up their funding. So they didn't have to fund for the the next six months. It's just a grassroots thing that I did. And it became huge in Philly and beyond. So That's so beautiful. And what a beautiful tribute to your husband. What is your best advice for someone who needs to be a, a cancer advocate or a caretaker? Hmm. Um, 
you do have to learn to compartmentalize. I think I did it on my own naturally. Just I didn't go into a mode where I think you have to have outlets. I'm going to say that. So I spent a lot of time. First of all, I made it very clear to my job that I was going through something very difficult and that a lot of my time at the time, you know, my, it, it was being taken away from my work. Um, luckily, I had a really great support system there. They're incredible. I actually needed to take a leave and they allowed it and um, it was seamless. Um, but I would say not everybody is in that position to do that. And I understand that. Um, my husband's work was also incredibly gracious and super supportive. And he worked up until his last like month or two um, because he was able to do, he was doing not just a chef, he was a culinary director. So I would say the first thing you have to do is really know your limitations. And it's going to take a lot of time out of your daily routine um, treatment is some treatment, as you know, is every day. Sometimes you have to have dual treatments um, and it can last for a long time. So I think you have to be one really upfront with what you're doing in your own career or your job and let them know this is happening and see what type of financial help you can receive. Because if you don't connect on the financial part first, it will unravel and then your emotional bandwidth well, you won't be able to be the caretaker that you want to be. Right. You have too much other things to worry about. There's so many. So find that out too. If you have a good community of friends and family, this is the time you do not feel funny about asking them very specifically for what you need. When you are diagnosed with cancer, people say, what do you need? What do you need? What do you need? And I was one of those people, but now I know you don't ask the people what you need. If you have a friend or a family member member that is dealing with cancer and treatment, you just do. You don't ask. Um, take their kids out for a few hours, offer to be their ride, and don't say, when do you need it? Say, I will be there every Wednesday at 12 o'clock and I'll take you to the hospital. Or bring groceries to their house. Don't worry about their likes and dislikes. Get basic fruit, vegetables, hydration so that the person that's doing the caretaker to caretaking doesn't also have to do the shopping and the food prep. Um, have friends, if you have children, um, have friends do uh, homework clubs. My kids have a pretty rigorous homework schedule and they're really independent, but also I wasn't able to keep up with that all the time. Now, granted, they, it was the summer. So then it was like, okay, put them in camps. Well, I can't pick them up every day. So it's just finding your people, finding your community, sometimes making a list for them. And then also listeners, if you're listening for someone else, don't ask, just do. I love that. And you brought up some good points about if you're going with someone to an appointment, things that you could do. I loved um, packing a bag, whether we used it or not. I would, the days are very long, especially when you're doing um, a check-in with your doctor, lab work, chemo, and radiation. It would be about a six to seven and a half, eight hour day for the two of us at the hospital. I was bringing my laptop for work um, and notepads and things, but I would also pack, um, Interestingly, I packed snacks, of course. I would always try to 
for us green juices, pack plenty of water, gum, books, games, um, just for those moments in between. I would pack sprays. So the room would either smell like rosemary or lavender and all the nurses would come in and be like, wow, what is that smell? I'm like, I'm just creating a vibe. (laughs) And it would put my husband at ease. I would often turn once we got called back to a room. um, I would let him do as much talking as he wanted to, but then I would really take over. My biggest thing aside from snacks is I think the favor that I was able to do with my his doctors and what I learned were, was really successful is prior to going to your appointments, you create a list with your person. So the patient and the caregiver create a list, a list of questions. I would always send the list of questions in email format or through a portal to the doctors in advance so that if they could prepare, if they had enough time, they would come in and answer our questions. If not, I brought a copy with me and I made sure that I went down the line and they answered everything. It saved us so much time and every one of the doctors and nurses loved this. They said they were like super appreciative of it. That's a great idea. And especially because, you know, you're going to forget everything the second you walk in the doctor's appointment. So it's really important to write that stuff down beforehand. Absolutely. So let's talk about grief. Obviously, it's a very complicated subject. But, you know, he passed away. It's been about three, four months now. Yeah, we're five months now. Where are you in grief? Um, Okay, that's a great question. And I will answer by saying I'm in it. I'm just in it. Um, I would say the beginning, I think I was in such, uh, I had the difficult, difficult role of making some very difficult decisions on my husband's behalf when he was not able to do so, like putting him in comfort care. Um, that, but there was no other treatment. And he also developed a secondary brain cancer at this time called leptomeningeal metastasis. And what that is, it's in the fluid of the brain. Um, So it's not a solid cancer. It's not a solid tumor. It's nothing that they can take care of with treatment. And typically you have anywhere from two weeks to a few months. Um, And he was already struggling with um, so many other things. He had a collapsed lung in three spots. He had tons of fluid building up. He could barely eat or move. Um, Yet he was the kindest patient, never once complained to myself, his doctors, his nurses, anyone. Not one complaint ever. One time he got angry um, about the leptomeningeal metastasis when we realized there was no more treatment left. Um, but it was terrible because I had spent most of the summer taking him to the hospital and we would spend about a week or two and then we would come home. The last time I took him to the hospital, we never came back. Um, and so I specifically remember the last day that my children physically touched and said goodbye to their dad. I don't believe in his head. He understood or believed at the time that it was his last and the children didn't either. Um, but I do now looking back on that. And after he passed, there was so much to take care of. I had to tell before he passed, I had to tell all of his siblings and his mother-in-law, his mom, whom I love. And that was really hard for me to do that. I felt very responsible. 
to be able to take care of this person. That was my, that was my role. And he took care of me. And that's just what we did for each other. And the fact that I had to put him in comfort care and explain that to them was very difficult. And I'm lucky that the care team helped me do that. Um, they were absolutely phenomenal and palliative care and his oncologist, every, the entire team. Did you have these discussions with him when he was in a better mental state or he no? I did not want to discuss this. So I did, but I had to meet him where he was and I had to respect his journey. And I do not feel an ounce of regret that I didn't push that because it's where he was. And I could deal with the fact that I knew I was losing him, but I did that on my own with my own therapist. And um, what I did for him was respect his wishes and live in the moment, which was we are tackling, tackling this every single day and I am never giving up. And he didn't, Robin, he fought so hard and he never gave up. I'm sure. Oh. I'm like in tears. I'm just, I, I, I mean, your post on Instagram, I just could tell you two are so connected. Um, and the, just the love you two had for each other. It was so beautiful. Something special. I mean, I would think that everybody has that. And he would always remind me, this is not a typical marriage. A couples don't last like this or, or, and this is pre cancer, you know, we just, but, um, Immediately after, I think I was in shock, but I didn't think I was because I went from being his caretaker, which is like a 24-7 job, emotionally, physically, mentally, to then just um, planning his, um, what we were going to do for, you know, after, what the, what type of ceremony we were going to have, who was going to be invited, um, how are we going to do this? And I knew and we did talk about this, but at another earlier, earlier stage, he did not want a typical funeral and we didn't have a typical wedding and we were not going to, and we, we just don't do things in the traditional manner. And I knew that we, I had to honor him and his send off was absolutely beautiful. Was the most, it was such a spectacular day. Um, and we had a private, um, we had a private send off where we buried some of his ashes. He was cremated with his father's. Um, and it was just intimate, like just my, his brothers and sisters and his mom and, uh, my nieces and nephew and my kids. That was, I can't imagine, but his send off was, I just was in a different mode and everyone's like, wow, you're really holding it together. And it took a lot of weeks for me to come into a different stage of grief and now I just say I'm in the stage of in it. I'm just in it. There's no getting, you hear a lot of people say like, oh, you're going to get through this or you'll get over this. I think when you really understand grief, what I'm learning through therapy and through reading and just listening to my own feelings is that there's nothing to get over or through. I'm just in it. It will change as time goes on. But right now I'm really in it. I miss him every day in a way that is really painful. So it's a lot about just keeping it together and keeping busy. And then also I learned from my therapist to, to do something really important that your listeners might need to hear, but there's something called recovery time. I wasn't scheduling that. And now I schedule it for myself and the kids. And that just means 
We don't take visitors. We don't make plans. Nothing happens. If we all lay in bed in our PJs for one day and just cuddle, that is our recovery day. And when I wasn't putting that into my schedule, I was spiraling. Uh huh. And now we're all doing a little better with that. I was going to ask, how are the kids doing? The kids are doing, of course, they're children. So they are resilient, you know, resilient AF. <laughs> um, they are each learning to open up in their therapy sessions about it in different ways. And they are there for each other. And my they're there for me. And when my husband was sick, I never let them see me get upset. It was a lot of like ugly crying in the basement in a pillow. So no one would hear me or see me clean myself up and just be like, yep, okay, I'll have dinner on the table in a minute. Everything's fine. I'm fine. Everything's fine. Um, and now I don't do that. I They need to see that, you know, and they know my son really looks out, but it's coming out in their writing, which is beautiful. It's cool. Um And I think it's something that they are going to be in also for the rest of their life. And there's a lot of big milestones that you think about that are coming up, especially for my son. He just, um, we're about to hear what high schools he's getting into and all of his, you know, when we were doing his applications, he really wanted him to be there. My daughter ran a 5K and she really wanted daddy at that finish line. One of his sayings was be a finisher. And um, it's just the little moments throughout the day that yesterday I did something. I was had to finish up a work call and I couldn't be there for my daughter for a moment for homework. And I said, um, okay, I'm going upstairs. I'm taking a call. You have to be quiet. But if you need help, just ask daddy. And as soon as I said that, she looked at me and I looked at her and we both just lost it. And I just decided we, we sat together in that. And then I said, I meant to say, Dan her brother. And he came over and he hugged us. We cleaned up and we got through. Um, and that's just what, that's just what it is. It looks different every day, Robin. I love that. You know, I'm a very spiritual person and I believe that these people are here with us in different ways. I I think we've spoken about this, that you are too. Yes. Uh, how do you connect? How do you see your husband? How do you connect with him these days? So I, of course, because I am a spiritual person and he was too, and we do believe it's just how we believe in things, um, that we're all made of stars and that we then go to the cosmos in a different way. And I think the grief is hard because I want physical, natural, like real signs and they don't happen right as much as they want. Or if they do happen, you might even be skeptical. I'm learning that. It, it has happened actually a few times. One time I was in a, where was, I was in like this, a location. Um, I can't remember, but it was either, it was a store, I think. And one of the songs that I had a vocalist sing at his um, memorial was this song called Goodbyes by Georgia Smith. And it basically talks about, I mean, listen to the song, listen to the lyrics and it's not played on the radio. It is not a popular song or anything. And I was with someone and they started to talk about Jim and we're chatting and I answered questions and I said, wait, do you hear what song is on? And they like, I said, this was the song that we sang right before Daniel spoke. And 
they had never heard it outside of the memorial. The store owner was like, I'm not, I don't know what song this is. And I was like, he's with us. He's with us right now. He hears me talking about Dan and him, and he's here to let me know he's here. I hear signs and songs all the time. Like, I think that's a big one for me, especially if I'm alone in my car. Yes. Songs were such a huge part of his memorial. We had um, a New Orleans style band play us to a, a, you know, the funeral procession to walk myself and the kids in. Then I had several different vocalists sing at different times. I had Queen playing all of the loudspeakers at this one point, Love of My Life. Um, it was a huge part of it. And then um, another time I find him in nature. That's when I find him the most. I out. I go to the Catskills quite a bit. My family has homes there and we get to go with the kids. And when I go by myself or bring them on a hike and I am just sitting, which is so abnormal for me, my husband can really do that. I was the fire and he was the Zen. It's when I sit and um, I'll see like we, it's so strange. There won't even be a flower in bloom and all the this has happened twice to me on the same hill on the same mountain and a flower or a feather comes floating by and it will stay with me for a little bit in this. And my son was with me one time and I was like, that is dad. And so being in nature is really helpful for me. And then the other time I was at work was I was in Boston. It was really cold and we're doing a site visit. It was on my last one for the day. And of course, when I'm traveling, as soon as I touch down, the first person I want to connect with is Jim and let him know I've arrived safely. And I feel like I can't do that. And so I think that was with me all day. And it was my last one before I was going to get on the train. And I saw a cardinal. And I felt that I had read that cardinals are the sign. And I was like, well, I'm going to take that. I'm taking that as a sign. And I, in my head, said, I'm here, babe. I know you're with me. You know I'm safe. I hope you're rested. I wound up writing to my mother-in-law on the train that day because I wanted to connect with her. We're close. And um, I said, you know, she's always asking how I am and, and me, her. And I said, you know, I wanted to let you know, I think Jim was with me today. I happened to see a cardinal on my last um, site visit. She said, what? There were two cardinals in your back patio today when I was with, she was watching the kids. Uh-huh. and. I just, that is strange that the same, like, a you know, come to both of us on the same day. And I thought, like, I'm not denying that. That's him. Yeah. Uh, Adrian and I both are firm believers at birds. Like, I see birds all the time, especially cardinals. I don't see them a lot. And that's why I even felt more. I was like, oh, my gosh, this is uh, this is it. And it just was really touching that I could share that. Like, I'm so glad that I was open enough to share that with my mother-in-law because she may never have said anything to me. And here we have at the same time, the same day in two different cities, him coming, you know, us feeling his presence. I think that signs are one of those things that once you see it, you start seeing more and you're like, wow, it's actually all over. Like, that's how I feel about it. Yeah. I mean, it's a good way to be. The the biggest thing for me is just to keep him with me every day. I won't take pictures down in my house. I wear his sweatshirts and t-shirts. I'm making, um, in the future, I'd like to do something with his shirts for my kids when they're ready. Um, But it's just never it's very painful to talk about the person that you want with you in your future. 
you know, I have all these memories of my past. It's like what I'm sitting in, in the present is why it hurts so much because he's not here. But my way to bring him, to have him with me is to never forget him and to remind my children all the time and talk about him. And I do have some friends and family that are comfortable with that and others aren't. And that's fine. You find, you find your people that are and you do what makes you in grief feel like you can cope. I love that. And I love what the, um, the restaurant community or the culinary community in Philadelphia, they've really come together for your husband. Unbelievable. In an unbelievable way on so many levels. He was a very quiet, um, reserved chef. He did get a lot of national accolades, best new chef in the country, best new entree, James Beard awards and nominations, pardon me. And, um, Boku store, which is like the culinary Olympics for, I mean, and you wouldn't know it. He never needed to be in the spotlight. His favorite place to be was with the three of us. And he made that known no matter how busy he was with work, a chef's hours are really difficult. And he just was able to, he was able to make time for us and, and be present. And he just made us feel like we were the only people in the room when he was here. And that's why his loss is so great. But the community knew that. And they just came together in such a beautiful, meaningful way, also helped the organization that we were raising money for. And then beyond that, on their own, they started raising money for our family. And I didn't expect that. And it was, it has helped our family tremendously. So that's incredible. We're really lucky to be a part of that. And at his memorial, I planned for maybe 300 people. We had 600 people. Wow. He was so loved. He was so, so very loved. He is so very loved. He was so respected because he showed every single person in his surrounding, whether you were the dishwasher or the world's greatest chef, you he, you got the same from Jim. And he taught us all so much. And what he taught me and my family is to live every day with intention. I love that. Live life like Jim. Right? Live life like Jim. Just, just, you know, it, it doesn't mean being overboard. It's just being present and making, knowing what's really important and setting, having those intentions, whether it's to like, for us, our love language is food. So, you know, we, we eat well and we celebrate food and around it and that's intentional and we still carry that over. Well, Christina, I am so grateful for you sharing your story and Jim's story. And he sounds like a beautiful man. And I'm so happy we could honor his legacy today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me and letting me go on and on and share all about my person who I'm still madly in love with. Oh, he's he's with you. I feel it. I see it. And you're I love I love seeing you on Instagram and following you. And I I consider you a good friend. So thank you so much. I'm glad to have you as such a smart, strong, uh, another woman that is always educating in the most fun way. I'm so lucky to be in your community. And I really hope everybody follows you and listens because you are really doing some phenomenal work for people. Thank you. And thank you again. And you will continue doing great work and honoring him. And I know that. All right. Sending you and the kids the best. Again, thank you to Christina for sharing Jim's beautiful legacy with us. 
Please visit tagtimehappyhour.org to hear more about Jim and Christina's incredible organization to benefit EGFR-positive lung cancer, and follow Christina Burke on Instagram to keep up with her cancer journey. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed this conversation or learned something new, please go to Apple Podcasts and leave me a five-star review and help spread the word. If you tell me you did, I'll give you a big virtual smoocheroo. And of course, make sure you follow me across all social media platforms at The Booby Docs for more of the breast information. And a huge thank you to my podcast producer, Christian Cuveta, an amazing medical student who also wrote and produced the music for this show. Take it away, Christian.